Hello, listener. As Thanksgiving approaches here in the U.S., I want to say that I'm thankful for all of you who listen to and share this podcast, regardless of where you are. And if you find yourself in a heated argument at dinner with a family member you rarely see, remember you can always shift the conversation by asking what they think about the future of automation or how they think about business model innovation. I'm still going to school on artificial intelligence. Today's guest was very patient in explaining to me the multiple uses of AI in drug development. I think you're going to enjoy it. Stick around to the end for a mind-blowing vision of the future. Now, let's jump into it. Ashwini Gogari is the CEO of Artificial Intelligence and Automation in Drug Discovery at Millipore Sigma. Ashwini, welcome to CC Life Science. Thank you, Chris. It's fantastic to be here. So we've previously talked on this podcast about identifying small molecule drug candidates through DNA encoded libraries. Today, we're going to talk about a different approach, which is not mutually exclusive. Once you've identified a hit, you still need to figure out the best way to synthesize whatever you're going after. So to start, talk about the process of small molecule drug design um, and the challenges for medicinal chemists. Great question. Um, so from the med- medicine chemist perspective, right, I think um, finding, you know, hit to lead, lead opt, I think are kind of critical right before they go to synthesis. And within um, the process of finding a new lead, you know, hit molecule all the way to optimization, I think multiple challenges on multiple fronts, right? Finding a molecule that has better ADME properties, uh, as simple as, you know, spiskin properties, including solubility, finding, you know, those good candidates um, and finding ones that are, um, that have the freedom to operate, right, from from the drug discovery perspective and IP perspective, I think is a bigger, is is one of the challenges. Um, But the bigger challenge is finding compounds that are synthesizable in the same breath. And so, um, as you can see, many technologies in this domain are trying to integrate the ability to what we call synthesizability, as well as ADME properties, um, much ahead in the drug discovery paradigm um, by using machine learning and AI uh, to guide the search right from the get-go um, of this drug discovery process. I want to dig into synthesizability. Um because I'm always curious about this. I, I had this impression, and I understand as a little bit of a chemist, that to create larger or more complex molecules, I should say, not necessarily larger, um, it takes some thought about the pathways about how they get together. I've recently seen a picture of perfluorocubane. Do you know what I'm talking about? It's a cube. I think it's a carbon cube. So a carbon molecule, I believe, at every corner of this cube with a fluoride on every corner. And I'm looking at that and I go, you can make that. You can make, how do you even know what you're getting, right? So um, talk about a little bit. I guess it's the AI part that's helping you understand synthesizability. And I, I realize maybe it's just a matter of yield as opposed to can we get it at all? I mean, yield is, <laughs> well, there's multiple different aspects and questions in, in, in this. Um, yield to me is a whole different, um, it's a whole different um, 
paradigm, right? Um, so let's start with, let's just first answer the synthesizer of the DNA. I do want to spend maybe the next question on more of the lead identification side. But on the synthesizability, um, the uh, so a couple of things are important, right? If you break the, if you break down the molecule into smaller smaller parts and sort of retro design to your desirable compounds to start to the starting points, rather your desirable starting points, that is kind of that's important, right? Second is doing in few steps, um, and um, and then the concentration of yield, right? Uh, but there's two approaches usually chemists will take. Either they're in, they're either their discovery chemists, and depending on where they kind of stand in the discovery process, either they're early medicinal chemists who are looking to make multiple compounds. And so at that point, yield is not really a criteria. It's the ability to get to that compound, or to make that compound, right? Getting a retrosynthesis route to it, or multiple routes that are more successful to it. If you're a process chemist, then yield comes into consideration. That's where you're looking for when you're even retro designing for a molecule from a process perspective. Now you're looking at yield for each step. And so you're looking for shorter pathway that is better yielding as opposed to medchem where you, where you were okay with a few additional steps, but getting the compound is more critical to you. Um, so I think it's 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 a matter of perspective, um, but you, your algorithm should be able to help you either ways. Uh, for most chemists, it's still in the mind, and for the rest, it's um, you know retrosynthesis design tools. Yeah, so let's talk about that a little bit. I mean, I just got a lesson right there. So if I understand you right, early on, someone might take a non-optimal path to synthesize a compound and just say, "Can this thing do what we want it to do?" And then they hand it to somebody else and say, you figure out a better way to make it. Is that? Absolutely. Right? That's exactly how, how it goes. Yeah. So um, in what ways does artificial intelligence help with either or both of those processes? So, so first, the basic, prob basic step is to break a large molecule into smaller components, right? And, um, and so that no matter what approach you take, it's still... Um, um, it's important to break it down into smaller, smaller uh, building blocks. And once, so AI-driven methodologies or even rules-based. So Cynthia, for example, is a rules-based method that you know, um, that is able to do retrosynthesis design. There are other pure machine learning-based approaches as well uh, from you know from other academics groups. Um, but the main idea is to how do you break down a large molecule into smaller components stepwise, um, and the machine learning approach is essentially based on their training will then try to find your routes, like I said, either shorter routes with better yields or could be flexible routes, but with um, you know higher probability of success. Let's call it that way. So um, in both the approaches, the AI and, and methods can help. The advantage in rules-based methods is that it inherits um uh, it inherits considerations like um, uh, cross-reactivity, right? Certain functional groups have cross-reactivity, um, and so it already takes into account uh, neighboring group effects, cross-functionality that may prevent certain reactions from happening. So the success of a reaction um, is better determined when it comes to rules-based methods as, as opposed to machine learning methods. Uh, but I think both the methods are getting there. Um, you know, it, it's just a matter of, I think, preference and perspective um, on one versus the other. So 
Um, again, I'm still learning. This whole podcast is about me trying to understand this. So what we're talking about is someone designed a molecule, perhaps. Am I thinking about this right? And then what we're talking about here right now, or have been talking about for the last few minutes, is how to make it. Or is there an aspect of this where, and maybe this is just a separate sort of topic, where the AI is suggesting what to make. But this sounds like it's really about, here's a molecule, we'll break it into pieces. What's the pathway to get to what we want? Right. Um, but I think one the, the part that I we do want to talk about is how to make, right? So um, as, as you rightly put, right, if you divide this, so stepping back a bit in drug discovery, right? Uh, once you have a target of interest, um, any scientist would want to, you know, first de decide what compounds they want to make as inhibitors to those. Um, once they know what compounds they want to make, then they want to know how to make those compounds. And that's where the retrosynthesis comes into play. And then they actually go and make that compound. And that's where automation comes into play. So my team essentially looks at all three components on how to make, what to make, and make. And to put a bit light, to shed a bit of light on this, uh, since we are on the education path here. Uh, so let's start with how to make, right? So how to make and to decide what compounds to make. Um, I'm actually very happy to announce that on November 1st, we launched our first drug design, AI-enabled drug design software called Addison. And so this is the first time we're airing or talking about this on a podcast. Um, so um, it's a uh, AI-powered and computational chemistry-driven tool uh, that that takes into account ADME properties, FISCHEM properties, and synthesizability right from the first design step. And so your probability of success of finding a molecule that has drug-like properties, it's in, the success criteria or rather success probability has increased um, you know, dramatically. We take two different methods to be able to solve this. Uh, one method is to uh, use algorithms where you can search a large universe of chemical space and you can refer to our CND, an article that we published you know, a, a few months back on this. Um, where the number of actually stars are much smaller than the probability of number of compounds in this universe. And so how does one search such a large chemical space in the shortest amount of time? And we are talking about minutes as opposed to days to be able to search it. And so this powerful um, you know, AI-based methods that are able to do that, which is one of the ways we um, or tools available in Addison to do so. The other complementary approach to it is designing de novo molecule design from what we call generative chemistry. So generative chemistry are AI-based algorithms that are trained to design molecules um, that are you know, chemistry molecules based on all the properties that you've defined and the you know, target of your interest. So it comes up essentially with a new way um, to design your molecules um, as opposed to searching it from an, you know, a known or a virtual chemical space. So these two complementary approaches truly give um, or empower a scientist um, to innovate and, um, and find new molecules in, you know, for, for, um, for the lead ID and optimization phase. So um, I had a question. 
Oh, training. So how how is the, the machine learning trained on what you might ask it to make? What does what does the data set for training that look like? Yeah, so in terms of data sets, so, um, as you may be aware, right, most of the data sets or most of the machine learning models that you see uh, available are trained on public data. So this public data is um, based on ADME properties, so which is adsorption, uh, metabolism, excretion, so ADMET uh, properties, FISCAM properties like solubility. So these are what we call drug-like properties. And so you... Um, and. And so most of the machine learning models are trained on these properties that you find from public data, like publications or other data sets that are available. But to determine the true success, right, it, it, you can determine true success by only by experimentation. And so what we have tried to do, we have trained our machine learning models on our own proprietary healthcare data. So as you know, pharma sits on this wealth of data, right? And that, that they train their machine learning models on. And that data is important because it is experimentally validated, right? And that experimentally validated data leads to increased probability of success when you're looking for drug-like compounds. And so we have successfully been able to bring our machine learning models that are trained on our own healthcare data into a product um, that that other you know other you know peers in our group will be able to leverage um, and and you know guide their research. And I think this is one of the biggest challenges in this community is data sharing. There are many consortia um, you know that are there with academics as well as pharma companies like the Melody Consortia where pharma companies have come together and tried to train you know, machine learning models based on their data without sharing the data per se, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think it's a very powerful concept. Um, Mark KJA is also a part of one of these consortia, the Melody Consortia. And I think, so we have taken inspiration from there to say, how could we securely bring such models trained on pharma into a product without sharing data or compromising the data in any way. And so we've successfully been able to do that. And we're, um, we're hoping that the whole community sort of benefits from this. Um, so that is one. And we want to set an example with this to the community that, the, you know, I think one should be more open to these, you know, sharing data or learnings from our own data um, to eventually actually drug discovery and bring better drugs to market for, you know, for our patients much faster. That's a pretty amazing story in this industry, right? I mean, people will barely talk about marketing with each other, let alone (laughs) put actual product data into a database that someone else is going to benefit from. But I imagine, so let's talk about what the data sort of looks like. Maybe I'm going to take a guess, right? You have a compound, has a number of features on it, and you have the ADME data, and machine learning is associating that ADME data with presumably functional groups or some structures within that compound. And then if you say, I want to make a model that looks like this and has reasonable ADME properties, show me what that looks like. Am I right? Absolutely. <laughs> you are you're a pro now. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Now, <laughs> this is just fun for me. So 
you've mentioned, um, you know, the value of having these massive databases. And I presume many compounds in there are failures, right? That's, that's the business we're in. But there's value there. That's the, there's a huge amount, right? So talk a little bit about the gap on negative data and maybe what, what could be done to shrink that beyond what you just described. Absolutely. Um, and so the amount of data or R&B data we have to train our machine learning models in R&B is really small. To, to, if you compare this to finance, you know, finance and, and the data you have there or even on the healthcare side, I would almost say it's, it's no to, limited to no data from that perspective. Right? And so this is the biggest, this is a challenge. Just we, we all recognize in this community that R&D data is, is quite limited when it comes to big data or training data, you know, machine learning models on big data. But it's not always about, so the, the other important thing is, is sometimes it's not the volume of the data, it's the quality of the data. And so when we think about quality of the data, we, there are two aspects to it. There's the positive data, so all experiments that successfully completed, and then the negative data where these compounds failed, processes failed. So publications, most of the publications, I want to say 90% 90 of them, always have positive data. Right? And you need positive data to be able to successfully publish. Right? But there's barely any publications where that considers negative data into it. And so for a machine learning model, knowing positive and data is equally important. It's like training a child, right? You, you tell them what is good for them, but at the same time, you've got to tell them not to touch hot, hot things. Right. And so the, the machine learning model will develop if you give them the, the boundaries of what is good and positive, And then you give them boundaries of what is negative. And that brings the most successful you know, predictions out of it. And so I would say from that perspective, right, because we have a lot of positive data, we always sort of get into uh, the predictions that we, you know, we as in as a community, we get um, are sort of may not be as accurate if they were trained with the negative data. But how does one find negative data, right? And that is one of the biggest challenge. Um, so we have had these kind of conversations with, um, you know, with uh, some publication, you know, publishing groups as well, like Science Direct and others, a few years ago to see how could we, um, how could there be publications where some negative data could be shared? with the community and, you know, that we enrich our databases with the negative data sets as well. And so I think efforts are in that direction, but it's, it's kind of like you said, it's uh, sharing data is a challenge. Finding that data is a, you know, it, it's a key challenge, but I think with machine, with what we have tried to do, at least one step that we've taken in this direction is uh, training the machine learning models on our experimental data, which includes both positive data as well as negative data. And so I think that is one step forward in that direction, uh, but more needs to come overall, I feel, from the community. It seems like there's a big opportunity for some entrepreneur in this area to not only publish that data, but somehow to think of a way to generate more of it because the negative data you've generated is expensive, right? To, just to get ADME data means a trial of some sort that costs mm -hmm. a fair amount of money, even be, you know, and then 
you've got negative data on that, but how many other things could we test in some way that would give us to combine that data and say, all right, if we know this, then we know what the ADME data might look like. We'll call that negative. And then the other challenge, correct me if I'm wrong, is when you get negative data, then you have to publish everything as always so people can understand why it was negative because it might be negative not due to the properties of the compound, right? It could have been some other factor. Presumably, you did everything else right, but. Right, and so I, I agree, right? There are many variables come in, that come with it, and which is why it's a challenge, right? To, in publishing, also accepting or using some of that data. But I think one of the solutions, possible solutions around that, or one of the solutions that I think is gonna create a huge impact is automation. And so we're also investing heavily and you know into automation because automation essentially has the power to do two things. One, it brings in reproducibility. So you know exactly what's happening, how much the machine is adding its recording, and the reproducibility factor is extremely important. Right? The second is the scale. So doing those experiments, scaling your experiments to diversity, so more number of compounds, um, as well as more number of experiments to get to even one compound. So that scale that you can get with reproducibility, that's exactly the problem in today in negative data. And so with bringing automation in, you're essentially trying to mitigate two of the you know, key problems within, I would say, reproducibility of data, right, or validation of it. Of course, as many people would say, not all chemistry can be automated, all experimentation, and and complete. And I, I hear that, right? But I think it is important to understand the power and what chemistry can be automated and start leveraging from that point and slowly expand it into chemistries that would need, um, that would need optimization or, or scale to be automated. Um, but that right there is a solution that I think most of us are moving into it and we are super excited about it as well. Yeah. So you may have just answered my next question, but what's the next <laughs> best thing? What's that? What, what do you see 10 years from now? Like what do you think's possible or likely? What are you excited about beyond automation? And I'm going to try to simplify this, which maybe not all scientists may appreciate, but if you remember, there's these, uh, stores that create burger so there's there's a machine where you put in you know your recipe and it automatically brings a burger out right there's few in new york and, and across across the globe i know i think i had a coffee me. made that way once in san francisco <laughs> watch the machine put together your latte right so so uh i mean i know it's it's trying to make it too simple but uh, on a serious note right i think the the, one of the paradigm shifts or the transformation that will happen is going from automation to autonomous. So the ability for a machine to run reaction in, in an automated way is automation, right? Going from lead identification all the way to making it and giving you a set of compounds in your physical compounds in your hand. But the ability for the machine to then analyze the data and self-optimize to predict what should be the next next few reactions that you should run, that is state of the art. 
and the ability to be autonomous and self-optimizing is, um, I would say, that is going to be one of the, you know, um, one of the transformational um, shifts that we will see in the next ten years. I'm hoping it, it happens sooner, but you know, I'll take ten years. Yeah. All right. I'm going to say this. That is the most mind-blowing conclusion to any podcast I've ever done. Like, I never would have thought of that. So, Ashwini Gogari, I really want to thank you for sharing all that, being patient with my lack of understanding and just curiosity about these things. This has been a great episode. And yeah, thank you for your time. Thank you, Chris, for the invitation. And I appreciate your curiosity. So, um, you know, science and technology and curiosity is, is at the heart of our organization. And I want to congratulate you and thank you for doing such podcasts that kind of bring the message um, across to, to, you know, to our community. And I will say that this is one of the fewer in life science that I've seen. So kudos. Um, and thank you for the invitation. Yeah, my pleasure. I really appreciate Ashwini taking the time to help me understand all of this and share her vision for the drug development space. Speaking of sharing, I'd appreciate it if you shared this podcast with someone in the life sciences who can benefit from these discussions. I want to let you know that over the month of December, I'm likely to merge CC Life Science with Life Science Marketing Radio to create a single podcast feed with essentially alternating topics and possibly some sponsored content as well. It will be a bit of a branding challenge, but it will allow more people to get the content and choose the topics that are of interest to them, just like what we used to call a daily newspaper. That's all for now. I'll be back in a couple of weeks with another great episode. Bye-bye.